Well, good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Today is July 16th, 2013, and this is broadcast number 37. And as usual, I am your host, William Hill, and I say that every time, and by now you ought to know that. If you listen to this every week, you ought to know that I'm the host of the program. So I need to stop saying that. But of course, I keep saying that anyway, but ah, never mind. Well, anyway, today we do have an interesting program lined up, one that we did last year, um, and we're going to continue to try to do each year, not only for the PCA, but also for the other Reformed denominations. We'll have guests on to talk about the General Assembly that uh, occurs every year in, in most, if not all, of these Reformed denominations and talk about what happened, some of the events. And so we have Dr. Ben Shaw in studio, as it were. He's actually in my office, but we'll call it a studio at least for the next hour. Uh, we have him in, in studio to talk about the PCA General Assembly that occurred uh, just a few weeks ago here in uh, Greenville, South Carolina, and more about that in just a second. Uh, as usual, you can get more information about the seminary if you're interested in as a student or just in- interested in what we have to offer as far as different degree programs. Uh, you can visit us at our website at gpts.edu. In addition to that, during the summer, though things are a little quieter in the halls here, uh, we do have two programs that run during the summer. We have the 2013 Summer Institute that is coming up starting on August 5th. Uh, Dr. Joseph Piper, who is the president of the seminary, will be uh, teaching a week-long class on the topic of Let Your Progress Be Evident to All. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means we're going to look at various sermons by uh, notable men in the past and evaluate them, look at them to uh, help benefit and aid pastors, especially in the development of their own sermons, and to improve in that area as necessary. In addition to that, uh, in fact, the week prior to the Summer Institute, Dr. Shaw, who's my guest today, will be teaching a class on Ecclesiastes. Now, Curiously, I asked him what kind of things we might need to do before we take this class, and he strongly encouraged the people to translate the book of Ecclesiastes. And of course, I just finished my first exegesis class as a student here, and I think I laughed out loud when I thought about the daunting task of such a thing. Anyway, that's not a prerequisite, but it's helpful. Uh, needless to say. But he will be teaching a class on uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, and that will be held I believe that is July 29th, uh, starting on Monday at 1 o'clock, and that concludes Friday morning. If you want to find out more information, you can simply go to our website, as I said, gpts.edu, and you can sign up for both or one of those programs that are being offered here at the seminary. So take advantage of those things as you're able. As I mentioned, we do have uh, our Old Testament professor, Dr. Shaw, in studio today to talk about the 41st PCA General Assembly that was held here in Greenville at the TD Convention Center uh, just a few weeks ago. There was quite a bit of discussion, as usual, with the PCA General Assembly. It's always, well, you just never know what's going to happen, it seems. But, Dr. Shaw, it's good to have you on uh, today to talk about these things, and I know you had written a a blog article, and we're going to kind of use that as a springboard for our discussion, and probably it'll probably lead us into various tangents, as I'm prone to do as we do this. But it's good to have you here today to talk about this. Thank you. Now, Dr. Shaw, you did write an article on 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 what we're talking about. You 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 basically did, uh, as you called it, a postmortem 
on the 41st General Assembly of the PCA. Why don't you, just for the sake of the listeners, um, maybe summarize uh, your how you interpreted or maybe your impressions of the assembly as a whole before we dive into some of the more of the specific things that you had actually brought out here on your article. Yeah. There were a lot of people who were expecting, at least from the conservative perspective, a very negative assembly. Uh, and I think initially Thursday night when assembly wrapped up, that was probably my sense as well. But over the next couple of days, as I uh, talked about it with a couple of people who had not been there trying to explain what had happened and uh, the votes that were taken and that kind of thing, I concluded that things were not probably as bad as they initially seemed. Um, there were some things that, uh, I, you know, speaking from our perspective, we would have preferred not to have happened, but that's going to, you're, that's going to happen in any general assembly not every vote is going the way is going to go the way you would like it to so that the uh, the primary issues i think had to do with some of the votes with regard to overtures that had come to the assembly from the presbyteries there were two overtures overtures 19 and 23 that specifically asked the uh Assembly to direct the Standing Judicial Commission to reevaluate uh, or revisit two cases that the SJC had decided in the past year. Those two overtures were ruled out of order. Now, some people were disappointed that with those overtures, the the majority and, and both of those overtures had both uh, majority reports and minority reports coming from the overtures committee. There are a number of people who were disappointed that those reports were not heard. And in some sense, it is disappointing. The problem with that is that if the overture is, in fact, out of order, then it's not proper uh, to hear either the majority or the minority report. Uh, there were three other overtures, however, that were related to the same issue, uh, the issue of federal vision uh, and pedo-communion teaching in a couple of the PCA presbyteries. Uh, those will be visited by the Standing Judicial Commission when they meet in October. And so that uh, the, the issue is not dead, um, and uh, I suspect it will keep coming back in years to come. Now, you mentioned the Pato communion issue. That seems to be a subject, as in the years that I have uh, been in the PCA and, and more recently, uh, given the Internet, the technology, the ability to live, uh, watch the live stream of the proceedings on the floor, seems to me the issue of Pato communion pops up almost every year. One, in one way, shape, or form, we deal with it in some sense. Now, I don't know. This year, uh, I was a commissioner, uh, as you were. I don't know that we really dealt with anything, um, but we were responding to the review of presbytery records, and they caught some anomalies in the way some of the presbyteries were behaving or acting or ruling on these issues. Um, let's start with the Pato communion issue. Why is that a subject that seems to get 
for whatever reason, gets dinged every time we get together as an assembly? Well, I think the reason is that there are a number of men in the PCA and a number of men in, in, in broader conservative reformed circles that have developed the idea that, uh, from a particular view of covenant theology, that if communion and baptism are the signs of the covenant, then anyone who is eligible for baptism ought also to be eligible for communion. Now, historically, that has not been how uh, the Reformed confessions have viewed it, uh, and very few Reformed theologians uh, throughout the history of the Reformed Church have taken that view. But for whatever reason, it has become somewhat more common in the late 20th and early 21st century. Mm -hmm. And the issue... I mentioned um, the review of prostrate records. Um, tell us what what did they do? I know you served on that committee. Um, I think it was last year. Mm-hmm. Um, what what is their responsibility? And 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 furthermore, how important is that committee? Well, with the Presbyterian system, uh, the session is the ruling body of the local church. The presbytery is the, if you will, the ruling body of a regional. Uh, of the regional church, and then the General Assembly is the ruling body of the denomination as a whole. Every year, the higher courts, the session is the lowest court, uh, the Presbytery, then the the middle court, and the GA, the the highest court. The higher courts have a responsibility uh, that is referred to as review and control. In other words, it's the responsibility of the Presbytery each year to go through the records of the sessions uh, that make up the Presbytery and simply make sure that everything is being done decently and in order, uh, that uh, men with, uh, shall we say, aberrant theological views are not being uh, put into church office, uh, that things are being done properly. Uh, The General Assembly then has the responsibility of review and control over the presbyteries, and that's what review of presbytery records does. They go through the, re- the records of, the, of all of the presbyteries, or at least those presbyteries that actually submit uh, minutes from their meetings, go through the and – and they look for you – know, some of these things are uh, – Pedantic. Pedantic. Yeah, They're dotting right. I's and crossing T's. Right. Uh, but then they're also on the outlook for – men who have been perhaps admitted to ordination who have some questionable theological views, views that are contrary to the confession. And, uh, you know, it's spelled out really in in the uh, requirements for review of presbytery records that there are different levels of disagreement that a man may have with some element in the confession or catechisms. Uh, the most serious would be that a uh, man holds a view that in the uh, view of uh, presbytery, review of presbytery records strikes at the vitals of religion. It not only affects the, the fundamentals of the system, but it strikes at the vitals of religion. And so uh, the readers are particularly on the lookout uh, for those kinds of things. Uh, some presbyteries uh, tend to be somewhat looser mm-hmm. in the interpretation of things. Some presbyteries are more strict, but that's why these things come up every year. Now you mentioned this this idea that that they're looking for things that strike at the vitals of religion. 
Now, you hear that, and you think, as a member of the church, you think, well, that's good. You know, that's a good review and control process. But then you think about it a little bit further. You go beyond just, that sounds like a good thing to do, um, to what exactly does that mean? I mean, what then would qualify, and this will lead us right to the one issue that came up, what then determines that an issue or a view strikes at the vitals of religion? Well, in a certain sense, uh, it is a it is a judgment call on the part of the reviewers. Uh, but just to give examples, let's say that a man began teaching that justification was not by faith alone, but depended also upon a man's works, and that you could not count on. There's no such thing as as assurance mm-hmm. of salvation. Uh, in this life that you can only find out when you die and stand before judgment because your works are included in your justification. Well, that would strike at the vitals of religion because that's uh, doing two things. Number one, that's Roman Catholic teaching. Uh, number two, it is, um, it, it's removing the gospel uh, from the people. It's the kind of thing that, um, uh, you know, if— if you go back and look at the history of the Reformation, one of the things that the uh, Catholic apologists uh, took the Reformers to task for was, look, you can't have assurance of salvation in this life. And the Reformers said, yes, you can. The apostles make that very clear. And so if, if, if you teach that a man's justification is not only by faith but also by works— then you've removed something that the from him that the Bible says he can have. Mm-hmm. So there's this checks and balances, and it's a good thing to have. Um, but a, a, but as it usually does, it creates quite a bit of discussion. Um, and and the one that was well, there were actually two, if my memory is correct. Um, well, there's always a lot going on, and you try to keep track of everything, and it's sometimes chaotic. But anyway, um, try to do things decently in order. But even then, it seems chaotic um, as to what's going on. But you referenced in your blog, and I think this is accurate, um, the Pacific Northwest Presbytery was dinged, for lack of a better word, for this issue on Pato communion that we've already talked about, mm-hmm. and that created a bit of discussion and, 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 and so forth, and it appears that they were redirected to ensure that nobody is practicing in their presbytery this view of paid communion. Now, why is that important? Because it seems that if it's an allowable exception in the PCA, which it has become, unfortunately, at least in this person's opinion, um, why is the difference between, what's the difference between practice teaching and holding to that view? Well, the part of the problem with the minutes of the of Pacific Northwest Presbytery was that they seemed to indicate uh, that a man who held to Pado communion would have full liberty to preach and to teach his view. The problem with that is that the view is contrary to the Westminster Confession and catechisms. Uh, holding to Pado communion is contrary to at least 17 different passages in our doctrinal standards, which seems to me to be pretty significant. Well, uh, what uh, Pres- uh, Pacific Northwest Presbytery did was they came back and said, well, we that's what we said, but it wasn't really what we meant. Uh, we meant that a man is allowed to hold those views. 
He's allowed to explain them if people ask questions about them, but he is not allowed to practice them. Uh, and so, um, you know, like, like I say, I, I think that what uh, Pacific Northwest Presbytery had indicated was full liberty to uh, preach and to teach, and that wasn't really what they meant. Uh, but the good thing on on that discussion, however, if, again, if memory serves, is that that that, that Presbytery was then told by the General Assembly that they need to clean up the language, they need to revisit this, look at it again, it, to ensure that the General Assembly that there there's no practice of this going on uh, within their bounds, which is a, really a win, as it were, um, for that position. But you just mentioned something that I thought was, as I was sitting there, was rather intriguing to me, was uh, someone got up to the microphone during the discussion on this particular issue, whether it was the Pacific Northwest or the, the, South, uh, the, the Florida Presbyterian, I don't remember which, it doesn't really matter. But someone made the comment that in order to hold to the exception of Pato Communion, you'd have to hold, you'd have to dismiss 17 different statements. Yet they have to take almost 17 different exceptions to the Westminster Confession, larger, shorter catechism. And, but we tolerate that. But it comes to Pato Baptism, which we would never accept a person who denies Pato Baptism, you only have to take five. I found that to be rather striking when it comes to this whole issue, that here as, an, as a denomination, we've pretty much, I think, gone off the edge when it comes to Pato Communion. We've accepted it as a, as a viable exception, although um, not, as it were, striking at the vitals of religion. But that was an interesting part of the debate, yeah. I thought. Well, I, I, yeah, I don't think we've really accepted it as a viable exception. We've told men that they, the denomination has told men they can hold those views, but they cannot, in fact, uh, propound them. them from the pulpit and and in, and give uh, members of the church that that's the uh, that those are in fact the views of the denomination because that would be misrepresenting the doctrinal standards of the denomination. I've also been told that they cannot practice it. Now, what puzzles me is why these uh, men don't mm. find a denomination that is uh, more accepting of uh, of those views, but for whatever reason they haven't. I've I've always been uh, I've always wondered that. Yeah, it's interesting you said that because if their conscience is bound by this position, apparently they are because they voice their exception, knowing the the grief they're going to get depending on where they are. How can they, in good conscience, not teach it if they believe so emphatically that this is something the scriptures teach? Well, that's my question as well. I really don't know the answer to it. I don't. I don't know that I could do it. And, and as you indicated, there are denominations out there that do accept that position. Um, anyway, we'll leave that there. <laughs> that could be loaded. We could get into all kinds of discussion on that one, but we'll just leave that at that. There was another issue that came up that it, that garnered during the assembly that that really drew a ton of discussion. Um, this, I think, was even more so than the Pedo Communion thing. I think we're evolved to the point where we've accepted that we're going to have that discussion. Um, but there was this whole issue with the insider movement. So before we even press into the, the, the big discussion that resulted from that, can you tell us or tell the listeners at least what is, what is the insider movement? The insider movement is an approach to missions that has developed out of uh, the mission school at Fuller Seminary and some other uh, some other places that essentially holds that uh, people in 
non-Christian contexts who become Christians uh, can continue to observe uh, those non-Christian uh, religious elements uh, and and be, as it were, closet Christians in a in an antagonistic culture, so that uh, someone, for example, in an in a Muslim culture who is converted to Christ would, in this view, uh, be allowed to continue to attend the mosque, uh, to say the prayers and that kind of thing, and enjoy all the cultural trappings of Islam, and never uh, formally or in any sort of visible way uh, profess Christ and yet continue to be, as it were, a hidden believer. Um, and so that's the origin of, uh, of that debate, uh, the majority report uh, two year uh, two years ago, the General Assembly appointed an ad uh, a committee to look into that and to come back uh, with a two part report. The first part report had to do with the uh, translation uh, of uh, the Bible into Arabic and what terms for God. Particularly, the issue there was the use of familial father-son language for God the Father and God the Son, uh, there were some who were, uh, who were pushing for a removal of that kind of language because, in their view, it caused problems for Muslims, and Muslims took those words in the wrong way. Mm-hmm. That report came back last year and was accepted. Uh, the report this year was specifically then dealing with the insider movement. There was a majority report and a minority report. And the majority report, I thought, was quite sound, uh, very well done. It was a, it was to my mind about the best committee that you could expect uh, from the General Assembly. There was, however, a minority report written by one of the men on the uh, committee. Uh, who is uh, who grew up in uh, Muslim culture? Uh, he grew up in Egypt, and um, obviously, it's an issue that's dear to his heart. And uh, while I have much sympathy for him, uh, I think the his report was uh, let's just say it was not as careful as it should have been, mm-hmm. and it seemed to me to give too much away. Uh, to uh, what to the insider movement view, um, and and as a result, the uh, the issue has been kicked back to the committee for another year. Uh, and this this man's concern was, you know, how do we provide practical guidance for people in a Muslim culture, particularly or a Hindu culture, who have now uh, become Christians? How how do we guide them in, in how they're to approach that? How do they let others know uh, that they have come to Christ and they accept Christ as their Savior? Uh, he was concerned about practical issues, and I appreciate that concern. Uh, but I think his his concern uh, ended up with some uh, with some questionable theology. Well, there was one. Well, there's. I think there was. Well, definitely one statement, sentence, paragraph, very small section of the minority report that the assembly seemed to zero in on pretty rapidly. And, and in all fairness, and, and, and this is one of the things that 
causes me some grief, frankly, when it comes to the General Assembly. We get these lengthy minority reports, lengthy majority reports, way too late. So if the state of clerk is listening, I doubt he is. But if he is listening, these are kinds of the materials that we ought to have in our hands way before we get to the floor so we can carefully review them if we're going to actually vote on these things. Okay, that's just my two cents. For, take it for what it's worth. Um, but we got these minority reports, and they were both the majority report and the minority report were both lengthy documents. I'll admit I didn't read every word. Um, who had time at that moment to do that? Um, but the minority report had a statement in there, and I'm going to try to remember it. I could not find it. I was looking on the Internet. I know where I could get it, but it'll take me too long, and so I'm unprepared. But I'm going to do the best I can to get this right. But there was a statement in the minority report that caused a lot of discussion. And the statement went something like this, and Dr. Shaw can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it went like this. It was a question, and the question asked, are Allah of the Muslims and Yahweh of the Christians the same God? The answer, yes, until the veil is removed, and then it goes on to say. Okay, this, this particular point Got a great deal of discussion. Now, did I was I close? To oh, how you were that close. I, I, you know, the the question was: Is, is a lot of Muslims and, and Yahweh uh, are they the same God? And the answer was yes, but uh, and and even with the but part of the explanation, uh, you know. The confession of Muslims is that Allah has no son. That's right. Yahweh has a son. His name is Jesus. Um, and so to say that Allah of Muslims and Yahweh are the same God is simply a, an untruth, no matter how you try to massage that statement. Uh, and and I, I, in a sense, you can say when a, an Arabic Christian— says Allah, he's using God in the same sense that we would use, he, he's using Allah in the same sense uh, that we as, as English-speaking Christians would use the word God. And so he's obviously referring to God, the Trinity. But a Muslim who speaks of Allah is not referring to the Christian deity. He is referring to Allah, who is not Trinitarian, it's Allah is Unitarian, uh, and you know that, and and I think that particular statement, part of the reason that it it, it provoked so much response, was uh, the blatant problem of it, but I think it was also indicative of the theological shortcomings mm -hmm. uh, of the. Minority Report, that the man who wrote that report had, to my mind, not done so carefully. He had not thought carefully through the theological implications of a number of the things that he said. And there was a number of speakers that came to the microphone during this particular phase, and those of you who listen to this podcast who also watched the live stream, and I know a number of you did because I saw the comments on both Twitter and Facebook, you can't hide out there, by the way. Just letting you know. <laughs> the NSA is watching. You know, that you're right. And, and the Internet has no delete button, you know, so whatever you wrote is there for all time, um, even if you think you deleted it. But anyway, that's in the, that was free. I won't charge anybody for that.
But there was a number of things said at the microphone during the debate. Um, it got heated. Um, I think justifiably so. Um, I was a little taken aback uh, by the last speaker who kind of chastised the assembly for being emotional. Um, there are some things worth being emotional over. Um, the, the issue of God, the doctrine of God, was, was really in view here in a number of people's minds that was being threatened um, at some level. And even as you indicated on your article on your blog, Dr. Shaw, you, you said that this probably this whole idea of the insider movement, the both majority and the minority report, would have probably been accepted in the PCUSA. Um, but you're glad it wasn't accepted in the PCA for the reasons you've just obviously given. Um, but it did cause a bit of concern. And what was the end result um, to this I mean, I saw guys on Facebook saying things like, if the PCA adopts this, that they've completely apostatized. Now, I'm not, I'm not in a position to say that that's necessarily true. I wouldn't have been happy. Uh, one man sitting next to me actually leaned over to me and said that this issue would be worth leaving the denomination over if this was adopted. Um, okay, be that as it may. What was the resolution? resolution was that the whole report was kicked back to the, uh, to the committee. They were asked to revisit some of those issues, uh, particularly uh, the issue of giving practical advice for mm-hmm. those who are now Christians in a, in an antagonistic religious culture such as Islam or Hinduism. And uh, I just look forward to getting that report next year, yeah, although well, I hope I get it in time to right, read to re- the whole thing carefully. Yeah, not not six hours before. Okay, never mind. I, enough beating up on the process, um, at least for the moment. But, it, yeah, and, and, and that, what, and to me, in my mind um, – was better than the alternative. To adopt it, I think, would have been, well, catastrophic for a number of churches, uh, a number of individuals, particularly people who spoke at the mic and flat out said what they were going to do if it happened. Um, but it was probably, at least in my assessment, um, was more was one of the most, uh, of this assembly, it was, it was the issue that garnered quite a bit of discussion and, and Emotion, um, and I think justifiably so anyway, regardless of what was said later um, about that. Um, but it is an important issue. Uh, how do we do these things in, in Muslim community, in, in the Muslim world? I mean, it's, you know, I think we take a lot of things for granted. Uh, you know, we just say, God, we know what we mean. We live in America. You know, in the Muslim communities, as the insider, the, the, the author of the Minority Report spoke at the microphone, and he made reference to the fact that when he prays in his prayer closet, he, he uses the term in Arabic, uh, uh, it's Allah, right? All right. That means yes. God, yes. but he uses it in reference to the Christian God. Sure. Okay, uh, I, I don't get it, but fine. Um, and that, I think that was his point, but not worded really well. Uh, maybe a little sloppy. Um, as it went through. Again, I didn't read the whole thing. I still haven't, actually. But um, my two cents for what it's worth. But that was, I think, one of the bigger issues that came about um, in this assembly. It, it garnered a lot of attention. I forgot how long we t- debated it. Now, there was another discussion that um, came up. You mentioned here on your article that you were heartened by the fact that the Committee of Commissioners for the Interchurch Relations Committee press the issue regarding the membership of the uh, National Association of Evangelicals. Lots of words there. What, what are we talking about with this? All right. The PCA is a member 
of the National Association of Evangelicals. And there's a lot of historical reasons why that's the case. Uh, The stated clerk of the PCA, Roy Taylor, is on the board of the National Association of Evangelicals. Uh, And that has contributed to some of the difficulties uh, in recent years. The, The reason being that the National Association of Evangelicals has uh, taken a number of views in the last several years and pushed a number of views in the last several years uh, that are contrary either to our doctrinal standards or are uh, certainly not shared uh, by most uh, members or even most uh, teaching elders, say, in the PCA. Uh, so, for example, the, the the National Association of Evangelicals has seen fit to uh, take a particular stance with regard to climate change and global warming. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've uh, decided to take a particular stance with regard to uh, so-called social justice. And they've pushed a number of these viewpoints, and frankly, the... Uh, Some of them I might find agreeable, many of them I do not, but I I don't see, and many people in the PCA don't see what, if anything, uh, the PCA gains by uh, being a member organization of the NAE. Well, what do they gain? I don't know. I mean, is is it just some kind of uh, rubbing shoulders with... (laughs) <laughs> I, I suppose, uh, lo- looking back at the history of it, I suppose that when the PCA was a much smaller and much more regional denomination uh, back in its early years, that there was a hope that with, uh, you know, sort of binding together with other generally like-minded Christians, uh, we could have a, uh, a louder voice, if you will, in uh, – national uh, political and social issues um, and but I to be honest I don't know that the uh, that the NAE is a voice uh, that that is much heard uh, in the society at large uh, and I I just don't see that the PCA has any gain from that membership mm-hmm. what was your um I'm probably going to ask you some questions now that you may wince at, perhaps. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. What was your over imp- overall impression? I mean, if you if you had to score this assembly, and you've been to a number of them, obviously, um, worked very closely um, on a number of committees uh, through the years. Um, how, how did you walk away? Did you feel like the denomination had, had slipped slipped backwards again, or is is slipping backwards, or are we holding ground, or did we go forward? Well, it's really hard for me to tell. Uh, from its very beginning, the PCA has been a theological mixed bag. Mm-hmm. Uh, the early years of the PCA, I would say that it's fair to say that you really had three groups that made up uh, the those who pulled out of the PCUS and the early 1970s. You had fundamentalists who were uh, largely concerned that the PCUS was giving money to communists. Uh, mm. You had evangelicals who were concerned that the PCUS was not doing sufficient evangelism, that they were, in, in, in that sense, giving away the gospel. And you had reformed folks who said, look, the PCUS is getting away from its historically reformed confession. Uh, 
Um, now, uh, when they were all still in the same denomination, they were sort of co-belligerents. Uh, but <laughs> when they formed their own de- own denomination, then suddenly the divisions uh, among them began to be apparent. And uh, that, I think by, you know, we're 40 years in, into the denomination now. We're beginning to get men uh, uh, coming into the ministry in the PCA who were who were not around uh, when the PCA was founded. They weren't around for the first 10, 15, 20 years of the life of the PCA. And, uh, uh, and they don't know the history. They don't know those issues. And to a certain extent, they don't care because our, this generation has its own issues. Every generation of a denomination is going to have issues that it's got to deal with. Um, and Dabney said something in, in one of his essays about each mm-hmm. generation having to revisit these fundamental issues for itself, uh, that we cannot uh, simply hang on to the coattails of our fathers uh, in, in these things. And so uh, BCA was a mixed bag in 1973. It was a mixed bag in 1982 when the RPCES was joined and received. And it's a mixed bag now. Uh, whether it's worse now than it was then, uh, I don't know. Um, I, I think, as I said, that by and large the fundamentalist factor is almost non-existent. Uh, in its place, uh, you still have the evangelical, the broadly evangelical Presbyterians, and you have the more strictly Reformed Presbyterians, and you've also then got these, you know, uh, Federal Vision influence folks, Pado Communion folks, um, uh, people also influenced by uh, certain changes that are taking place in evangelicalism at large, uh, being influenced by emergent theology, for example, and that kind of thing. Uh, and so those are the issues that the church is having to hash out at this point. I had a friend of mine, common friend, you know him as well. I won't say who he is um, because I don't know that he'd want me to say who he is. Um, but he made a comment about, I was asking him you know, what he, where he felt the PCA was. And this is a man who's been around, was around back in the day when, this all, when the PCA was, gave, was, uh, was born and— um, I said, you know, how would you characterize the PCA? And he said, pragmatic. That's, he said, everything seems to be driven off, if it works, we'll do it, even if it's not confessional, which really prompts the question. And we see all these issues, the Pato communion issue. We, we dealt with the majority and minority report of the insider movement. Um, I was on the overtures committee. I, I dealt with 23 overtures over 12 hours, uh, exhausting work. Um, and I realize this is just your opinion. This is not, you're not speaking for the seminary, you're speaking for Dr. Shaw. How would you rank the PCA as a confessional body at this point? Um, well, I, I would say that uh, I do think many in the PCA are driven by more by pragmatic concerns than they are by doctrinal concerns mm. or confessional I'll put confessional concerns uh, and I think part of the reason is that we have a, a, a lot of men in the PCA who 
came to the PCA late, uh, as it were. Uh, they became Christians in college in the context of uh, some college uh, Christian outreach that was, if you will, generically evangelical. Uh, they were in that for a while, uh, got a sense of call to ministry. For whatever reason, they end up in the PCA. And uh, But what they've learned as they've grown as Christians is what I think is character- certainly characteristic of American evangelicalism is a pragmatic tendency. Uh, what works? Is this going to work? Well, if it works, we'll do it. If it doesn't work, we won't do it. Uh, it's the kind of thing you saw with the Willow Creek uh, mm-hmm. uh, seeker-sensitive. Now, they've given up on that. They decided after 30 years that it didn't really work, and so they went looking for something else to do. Uh, but that's what drives American evangelicalism is, is this pragmatic concern, and we have a lot of guys in the PCA who are uh, who have been influenced by that, uh, consciously or unconsciously, and they're often frustrated with um, those of us who have more confessional concerns. There was discussion. I'm sure you heard it, um, heard of it, maybe perhaps um, prior to this general assembly that. Um, a convocation of sessions would be erected and discussion amongst, for lack of a better way of expressing it, I really hate to politicize the whole thing, but I mean, I, I get a little agitated, frankly, with some of the terms, conservative, liberal, moderate, okay, whatever. Um, you know, I just prefer confessionally, strongly confessional, Presbyterian, strongly Presbyterian, okay. But there was discussion held um, in the open uh, that perhaps it would be time for a bunch of churches in the PCA to take off, hit the bricks, do something else. Do you think that at this point in time it would be prudent and prudent or wise to do such a thing, or do you think that would be jumping, jumping the gun? I think it would be jumping the gun. Yeah, uh, I don't think we're at the point in the PCA where. And there are a number of considerations here. Mm -hmm. A friend of mine posted uh, something yesterday on Facebook. I'm sure it was a tweet that he sent out that um, (laughs) said something to the effect, uh, you don't want to be on the slippery slope, but you also don't want to be the frog in the pot. Um, Hmm. You know, uh, and there are, um, well, I'll put it this way, uh, at a, uh, evangelical meeting that I was at last November, uh, I was talking with a couple of guys who are PCUSA pastors. Now they're on the conservative end of the PCUSA, and they're sort of in in at this point they're sort of wondering what am I still doing in the PCA or in the PCUSA? And in in some sense, uh, I don't think anybody wants to be at a point where they're saying to themselves, "What am I still doing in the PCA? I should have left years ago." But on the other hand, I don't know that the church is benefited uh, by the creation of one more micro-denomination. Or, or, and, and my suspicion is that if you took all of the confessionally driven folks in the PCA, you could easily end up with three or four micro-denominations because some of those folks would be exclusive psalmody, some would not. Uh, some would be against the use of instruments in, in musical instruments in worship, some would not. Uh, you know, there would just be a variety of different views, and you'd end up with with small groups of people uh, who couldn't even dis- who, who couldn't even agree among themselves. 
And I don't think that's that's good for the health of the church. And, and I think that's what the basic conclusion was, and that, that's why nothing officially happened. Uh, just for those who are wondering whether that did happen, it did not happen. Um, for those reasons just stated, uh, it was this question of we don't even agree over what the issues are as conservatives. There's that word again. Um, so how can we get together and dis- discuss any kind of action when we don't really agree over what the critical issues are? Um, I think Andy Webb, I don't think he'd mind me mentioning his name, um, wrote, a, 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 I think, was a really good article on this particular subject uh, on the Aquila Report. And so if you want to find out more about that, you can just go to the Aquila Report and Google it and, and search for it. You'll find it. It's there. It's not a secret. Um, but there was also another, on the other side of this argument, the other side of this possibility that the conservatives were going to leave or some some percentage of the conservatives were going to leave, there was another insider-type activity going on sort of a secret society thing um were you familiar with any of that discussion i heard about it but that's the extent of my familiarity. yeah and 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 see that i think is dangerous on the other side you know it's it's just a different anytime you create or erect a secret society within the denomination to do things i think you create you're just asking for trouble um and that was going on as well there was a big article on the aquila report again on that particular subject so nothing i'm saying is secret or new it's just these are the kinds of things we're wrestling with as a denomination. And I agree with Dr. Shaw, frankly. I don't think um, it's time to jump ship. My, I learned a long time ago going through a church split that ecclesiology matters, um, and y- y- you need to labor where you're planted. Um, I, I, I agree. There's good, there may come a time in any denomination. I don't care if you're talking PCA, OPC, RPCNA. I don't care who you're talking about. There may come a time when you have to go. Um, but the question for us is, are we there yet? Uh, certainly there are things in the PCA I'd love to see changed. Um, and, and one of them we're going to talk about in just a second, actually, um, something that Dr. Shaw wisely brought up in his article, which had me perplexed when I was at the assembly, and that was when it came to voting, here we are, a court of the church, at least that's what we're supposed to be, on paper, um, everybody knows we have all these booths and we have this exhibit hall with every exhibitor known to man and in the room and and okay Uh, and it's nice and comfy and everybody can sit around and have conversations and fellowship and that's all fine and good um but you made the observation in your article that when it came to some of these critical votes what do we have 1200 members 1200 delegates 1200 commissioners commissioners um but the total votes were at least three or four hundred under the total number of commissioners registered for the assembly. Yeah. Now, I gotta, I gotta. What, what are they doing? Where are they during these debates and discussions? And I don't have the answer to that. They're not obviously not in the in the business meeting. Um, they're not taking part in the discussion. They're not taking part in the votes. I mean, maybe they're out in the exhibit hall um, uh, wandering around chatting to folks, or maybe they've uh, decided to go get lunch with a friend that they haven't seen since last year. Um, but they aren't, in, uh, they aren't in the labor part of the, of, the, uh, of the assembly, and that's, frankly, where they ought to be. I agree. I I was thinking about 
when when you wrote the article, I was thinking, okay, twelve hundred commissioners. We have eighty presbyteries, right? Eighty. Yes. So if you if you just take just a, a shot in the dark and said ten churches per presbytery, which is we know that's way low. I mean, yeah. even Calvary Presbytery has what sixty. Um, about 44 okay a substantial amount so yeah. i mean i'm being generous 10 yeah. churches and so 10 teaching elders that's 800 and then if the ruling elders come if one that's 1600 come and we, and i'm being generous so we're not even getting a good representation at general assembly of teaching elders and ruling elders right right and the, then and then a, a third of them aren't on the floor during discussion and debate and vote right the uh I think I worked it out uh, last year that if everybody came to General Assembly who could come to General Assembly, uh, we would have a pretty close to 5,000 people there, which would actually be pretty unwieldy. <laughs> I, I don't know that you could uh, that you could actually have a successful assembly with Laughable that. Laughable might be a word. Um, but, but yeah, and, and part of the problem is, uh, you know, the assembly is expensive, uh, for you know it was cheap for me because i live in greenville um so i didn't have to pay for travel expenses i didn't have to pay for a hotel or commissioner but, fees or yeah, i did have to pay commissioner fees oh did you really yes. aren't you a member of calvary presbytery i'm a member of calvary presbytery but you still have to pay commissioner fees are you sure you should yes. find out about that because i didn't pay oh uh, well we were told we were t- this is like nothing to do with the podcast but yeah. oh you're listening in anyway um, but we were told that because we're the host presbytery that we don't pay the four hundred dollars or the two fifty or whatever that nobody, number is. Nobody told me that. Nobody returned my money. So, well, <laughs> you might want to check. You might have some money coming back. No, that would be nice. But the um, you know the the fact is most small churches simply can't afford to send their pastor, let alone a teaching elder as well. Uh, there are churches, large churches in the denomination, that have more representation at General Assembly than some presbyteries, um, and and so the the representation at General Assembly is, uh, if we were doing a sociology report, mm-hmm. it would not be a statistically valid sample of the PCA. I'll just put it that way, and that and that raises kind of an interesting question for me. Um, just throwing this out loud, I'm not necessarily looking for an answer, but perhaps if five thousand people came <laughs> and all the craziness that would uh, result in, maybe the ones that can't afford to come, the small churches, the ones that are just trying to labor where they're planted, whatever, we could see a paradigm shift. Maybe it'd be worse. There's always that possibility, but maybe it would be better. Well, who knows? But how do we resolve? How would if you, Doctor Shaw, could just sit down and you had the power of the pen, or the you know you had unilateral power in this area, which would who wants that? But if yeah. he did, if you did, how do you resolve that problem? I mean, it, it, they have the assemblies in these huge cities or these big convention type situations and you you mentioned the hotel costs, the travel costs and, and you know food costs. How do we resolve this? Uh to my mind the only resolution is to have a delegated assembly in which each presbytery sends two delegates, a uh 
a teaching elder and a ruling elder, and then the presbytery absorbs the cost of the travel and, and food and registration fees. And and rather the meeting at, you know, if you had two men from every presbytery, that would be, a, I think we've got 80 presbyteries now. Yep. yep. Uh, that would be 160 men. You could meet at Covenant College. Uh, uh, you could meet uh, at uh, Covenant Seminary. Uh, there are all kinds of small venue places that could host 160 that can't host 2,000. Uh, so that the um, uh, and and in that case, every presbytery is equally represented. Mm. Uh, to my mind, that's really the only solution. You see I, that I, happening? I don't see it happening, unfortunately. Yeah, I don't either. I, sadly, uh, I know I've, editor- I've editorialized a lot in this particular podcast, probably to probably to my own hurt later, but we'll find out. But. Sadly, uh, men who take ordination vows, I'm just going to go right, cut right to the chase. You take ordination vows, you come to General Assembly, your, 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 your church is paying for it. Okay, they are. I mean, unless you're paying for it out of your own pocket, then do whatever you want. But if your church is paying for it, frankly, you ought to be there, and you ought to be about the business and vote and not be socializing in the exhibit hall when those things happen. I mean, okay. Everybody gets up and goes to the bathroom. Everybody gets up and goes when there's these video things going on. Okay, that's a whole other subject. But during debate of substance, like when the overtures are being discussed, you ought to be in the room. Um, sorry, but that's, you know, the way it is. Um, my two cents. Uh, take it for what it's worth. But but the reality is, is that a lot of times these general assemblies turn into just one big giant vacations for some. Not everyone. Some. And because they're in these, like, where are they next year? Houston? Yeah. Okay. Although a couple of years ago, it was in uh, Orlando, and they figured it was going to be big attendance because uh, folks <laughs> would be bringing their families to Disney World. But uh, as a matter of fact, it was the uh, lowest uh, assembly attendance in the last number of years. Hmm. So. I wonder what the reason for that is. Well, that's hard to figure out. But anyway, be that as it may, um, it is a court of the church. And and this is where a lot of things get done um, or not done, depending. Um, and it needs to be taken to that. And I'm not accusing anybody of not taking it seriously. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Um, but the reality is if you get sent there by your church and they're paying the bill, and then, you know, be diligent about the business. And not a third of the people that should be voting could be voting aren't there when the votes happen. That's, to me as bad as when we vote for the president of the United States. And I mean, what do we get for a percentage? And you get 90 million people voting and there's how many eligible voters in the United States, far more than 90 million, um, you know, do your duty and vote and, and, and have a say in what's going on here. Um, so next year we're in Houston. Um, I'm looking forward to going, uh, Lord willing. Um, will you be able to atone? Do you think? I'm planning on that too far in advance. <laughs> I haven't got that far yet, yeah. kind of thing. God willing, yes. But um, I thought it, my own impression of the assembly wasn't as bad as everybody was painting it up to be. Um, it, there was a lot of what's the right word? Um, Fear mongering. I don't know if that's the right word. Uh, you know, but there are issues. I don't think we're denying any of that. But I thought overall uh, the things that went pretty well. I mean, the overtures part of the discussion Thursday night 
that actually went pretty quickly, mm-hmm. uh, which led, leads me to believe that the Overtures Committee probably did a, a reasonable job in their recommendations. Yeah, um, I, I think that's true. I, I think that's right. I think also with General Assembly, there are a lot of guys every year who, you know, it's their first assembly. They've never been, never been before. They don't know quite what to expect. And so my plan is now, between now and, say, next uh, the end of uh, next January or February, I plan on putting together a little pamphlet for mm. um, good idea for first-time uh, assembly attenders, mm-hmm. uh, just what to expect, how things run, why things run the way they do. Uh, so that they're not completely lost uh, when they show up. I would have benefited from that. This was my first assembly as a commissioner, um, which means I got to stick up my little yellow card and vote, and um, it was a privilege. But I'll be honest, there were some things that were happening. I don't know what was – I was learning as I was going, which can be difficult when you're trying to make good decisions and and, and as you're sitting there. Um, That would be very helpful. Um, But I think it would be helpful for people who have been there ten times. But be that as it may (laughs) – Anyway, well, Dr. Shaw, I don't want to keep you any longer. We're about at the hour point now. But I think this has been helpful, a good summary of um, what did occur. I don't think this was an overly climactic assembly. I don't think it was that. I thought last year's was was far more um, controversial. If that's People love controversy. I mean, they just – anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think it was pretty tame, uh, by and large. I wasn't – Overly thrilled with the Tuesday night sermon. I'm sure opinions vary on that one. Um, But I think, by and large, it was okay Um, through and through. I I, I think it was actually a fairly average General Assembly. Yep. Now, you do blog. Why don't you tell the listeners where where you blog? And and, 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 this is where I got a lot of this discussion. I just basically took it from this article that he has written at. So why don't you tell the listeners where Uh you... I I blog at gptsrabbi.blogspot.com. Do you want to give us any background as to the rabbi part? Uh, Just because I teach Hebrew and Old Testament. (laughs) First question anybody generally asks me when they hear that I teach Hebrew is, oh, are you Jewish? Well, I think Dr. Piper thinks you are. (laughs) And then the uh, second question they ask is always, "Oh, have you been to the Holy Land?" Oh, and uh, have my you? An- I, my answer is no. I grew up in New Mexico. I don't need to go over to Israel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, if you don't know anything about Israel's climate and stuff, then that meant nothing to you. But if you do, then you get it completely. Um, write me at confessingourhope at gpts dot edu, and I'll explain it to you if you need to know. Um, but Dr. Piper thinks you're a rabbi. He always calls you that. <laughs> <laughs> of course, he's just kidding, and so am I, in case he listens to this and then expels me um, or fires me or both. Um, who knows? So, But anyway, Dr. Shaw, it's been good to have you on to talk about this. I know it's it can be difficult talking about a denomination that you spent a lot of years in. Um, I've been in the PCA since, um, I'm trying to think, 1998, so mm-hmm. 15 years um, I'm not one of these conservatives that's always looking to beat the PCA up. I actually love the denomination. Um, I love the people in it. Um, I disagree with some of the things that are going on, uh, but I also don't have my head in the ground either. Um, I'm willing to be candid for improvement. This is Christ's church. He runs it. I think he ran. He was superintending our activities at the assembly, especially when we had the debate on the insider movement. I was very thankful for that. Um, and I think there's godly men in the denomination, a lot of godly men, that we disagree. Um, and 
Some things are, are you can disagree and, and fine and go get a burger afterwards. And there's some things that you disagree over that are serious. And I, I, I wrestle with what those things are, um, and as I think a lot of people do um, as they think through things. But the PCA is doing a lot of great things, too. Um, active admissions, um, RUF campus ministries, though I'm not a big fan, frankly, of that particular issue um but they're reaching people for christ and so there's a lot of positives that are happening in the pca um we as i I think it's normal for humans to zero in on all those things that are wrong and miss what's right and and so we need to be balanced in our approach Uh, labor uh where we're at um and be faithful to that which god has called us to i don't care if you're in the pca or not um it's not the only denomination, but I'm in the PCA, Dr. Shaw's in the PCA, and we're trying to be faithful where we're planted to do what God has asked us to do. So thank you for being on and talking about these things. I know I asked you some rather hard questions that, there towards the end, but these are probably questions people are thinking um, and are afraid to say it. I have a microphone, so I get to talk and <laughs> say these things yeah. out loud. Let me give everybody a little bit of a a rundown of what's coming up on the program. Uh, uh, Joshua Sparkman, who's now a graduate of Greenville Seminary, I mentioned it, Dr. Shaw, earlier today. I said I thought Mr. Sparkman had graduated um, because he's bugging me as much as he did when he was here. I'm just kidding, Josh, if you listen to this program. Um, But he sets up all the guests for me, and he's been actively working behind the scenes, lining up guests for the next few weeks. We do have uh, Dr. Joseph Piper on the president of the seminary on Thursday. Um, which will be this, that episode will be then broadcast a week from this Friday. So whatever date that is, today's the 16th, 17th, 18th, the 26th of July. Um, do I have that right? I think I do. Um, that broadcast will be re- aired. This one will be aired on Friday of this week. Dr. Piper's Friday of next week. And then after that, we have Ryan McGraw on to talk about a little book that he wrote, uh, published by RHB, um, Christ's Glory, Our Good. It's an outstanding book. Um, we'll be talking with him. He's been a, a guest on the program a number of times, and so we'll have him back on to talk about that particular book. Uh, a couple of weeks after that, we'll be talking with Jonathan Holst about the OPC General Assembly, so we give equal time to all the denominations that want to talk about their assemblies and what went on, some of the activities. And so we'll be talking with him about the OPC General Assembly. And we have other things lined up. We have a missions uh, push that we're going to be doing here in a few weeks, talking with men like Mike Cuneo, who's laboring in Italy, and some other men that are laboring overseas on the uh, on the mission field, as it were. So those are a little bit of the highlights, the lowlights of what's going to be happening on the program. As it relates to the faith and practice segment, the easiest thing for you to do is go to the confessingourhope.com website. The, all the information is there. If you have a question for Dr. Piper that you want him to answer on the air, um, simply write in to the program. The information is there, the instructions. And if we do read your question on the air, you will get a free book sent postpaid by the seminary. So I have a, a list of books uh, that you can pick. So get your question in, and we'll be glad to take a look at it and see if it's something we want to read and deal with on the air. I have no influence over that. Dr. Piper simply picks four or five every week and reads them and deals with them. So look forward to that uh, in the near future as well. In addition to that, don't forget about the GPTS mobile app, available for Android and iOS if you choose to use uh, an iOS device. I won't editorialize any more on that one. 
So until next time, we do thank you for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And God bless.